Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. My guest today is a man of many guises. Psychologist, clergyman, neuroscientist and poet. And it is in this latter incarnation that we speak with him today, although I dare say his role as a wordsmith is informed by his experience in the other areas. Bill Jenkins is our author, and he has a poetry collection entitled We Carry the Cave. So, Bill, welcome to 3CR. Thank you so much, David. Now, look, let's start with a titular piece, We Carry the Cave. Would you care to read it for us, please? Certainly. We carry the cave from the start, alone and together. We carry the dark, we carry the shadows, the sun dying at the door, the warmth turning cold, bringing us together. We carry the fire, its lambent light making images dance on the walls, gifting us, feeding us, taking us beyond. From the cave, we carry our past and seek our future, trusting only the visions we carry from the flames. You seem to be taking us back to our primordial past almost. What are you suggesting? I'm not suggesting anything except that uh, we hope and dream and uh, a lot of our dreams are based on past experience and I suspect that's been true for a long, long time in human history. But that experience, the way it comes across in this poem, the experience is not concrete. It's all the shadows on the walls, so it's abstract, it's vague. Well, dreams are shadows. They're not uh, real, they're not tangible, until, of course, we do something to create them. Or we do something based on the dream, yes, yes. believing in the abstract Absolutely. rather than in the concrete. But most of the stuff in our minds, David, is... Uh, <laughs> this is the psychologist or the clergyman pretty, speaking? No. This or the is, neuroscientist? This, this, this is, it's pretty uh, intangible, what goes on in our heads. But then what does that say for culture and civilization and humanity? Well, it says it's... Uh, it can be incredibly fragile. I mean, don't forget our much of our early history as human beings was oral. Yes, but you seem to be looking at a... Well, we, we look at life as a certainty in many ways, and you're yeah. suggesting it's more vague. Oh, absolutely. Now, there are two poems that have sort of work as a pair, and one is called <laughs> I Am the Poem and We are the poem. The first is like a journey from river to fjord, but it is in the sharing that we create a poetry of sorts. And then the second also looks at creating meaning in life through that sharing. We become poetry or make poetry ourselves. I am the poem. When once a blind river raging through the land, driving all beyond across the shallows, now I am the deepest fjord, motionless, reflecting all skies, disturbed only by mystery, rising sometimes from my depths, bearing conviction, breaking my surface, bringing validity to the world with nearly a ripple. Except if you read me, we become the poem. So a sort of journey here. Oh, yes. Yes, very much so. A journey into age. A journey into age. And those stages of life, the raging 
river yeah. and then the fjord. Which, which one do you see yourself I'm, I'm definitely a fjord now. <laughs> well, the, the fjord still has oh, memories of the currents. river. There <laughs> are currents underneath the fjord. And but, the, uh, and the yeah. depth is, is quite amazing. But it's the individual there. I am the poem, but then the last line, we become the poem, That by well, sharing that. Yes, we are relational. The poetry is not, not, it might be considered to be an individual enterprise, but most poetry is written to be shared. It's like the oral tradition. I think it goes that far back. It really is. Uh, poetry was uh, the oral histories and stories were made to sound in a way that was rather rhythmic so that it could be remembered more easily. Uh, it wasn't abstract. It was tangible and uh, real so that people could uh, imagine without trying too hard. So that point there, I think, one of the points is definitely that uh, we share something fundamental and it's got to do with our life experience. You write a poem as an individual, as this one suggests, I am the poem. It becomes then we are the poem, which is the next poem. You turn over the page, in the box, in the dark, Some of us just sit, others cry and sob. Many just look at screens, some demand release, but we scratch at the walls. We wonder about the box, how strong it is, the texture of its surface, the dark dimensions of this encapsulation. We sit, we stand, we stomp about. How do we feel? We wonder, and those like us, how do they feel? So we find each other and we ask each other. And so it is, in the box, in the dark, we are the poem. Now, the transition here from the individual in that first poem to then making sense of your world by sharing it with somebody else. Well, we do. We seek validity. We seek validity for our experience. We seek validity for our identity, for who we are. We seek uh, validity for what we do. You know, it's, it's a habit we've got. But it's a rather dark and sombre world uh, that well, we live in. If you want to ask me if I'm a light or a dark poet, just read the book. I'm not a light poet. <laughs> I'm, know, a, I'm a dark poet. So is the world a box and we are in a sort of darkness? Yes. We are. Of course. And may I ask what's led to this sort of uh, interpretation? Uh, having come across so many people as a therapist and as a hospice chaplain, Uh, who were struggling to understand their lives, and a lot of them not doing very well at that. And that's the scratching on the walls. That's, uh, in fact, it's it's not simply um, a continuous characteristic of human beings, maybe, but, you know, I've scratched at the walls in my life. Uh, One of the reasons I wrote poetry, I started to write poetry in my uh, senior years, when I started becoming being a hospice chaplain in my 40s, was in order to express the feelings that I had. And that was also an attempt not to share the material so much with others in the first instance, but to understand, try and understand my own experience, my own feelings. I'm just wondering then if the fragility of life isn't something that should be lauded and exalted there's something beautiful in that fragility absolutely the mystery of our life of the universe is just profoundly fragile we have no idea 
But is is there a beauty in that fragility? Yeah, I believe so. So then that it's matching the unknown. matching that with a sense of darkness, though. Yes, well, it is dark. There's no light that's been shone on it, to my knowledge. Now, some people might believe that light has been shone on the darkness in our lives, but I don't. Well, this then gets me to your role as a clergyman, because you've taken <laughs> on one or two concepts that could be considered liturgical, and for fear of causing you to be excommunicated, there's one here called Original Sin, question mark. Take a snake called Temptation, an apple with a touch of knowledge, a more than luscious garden, two nudes with coincident genitalia, and a pinch of disobedience, and there you have it. The recipe for original sin. The stuff upon which our culture feeds. The sin that separates us from God. So, we want sex, knowledge, and freedom more than we want God. Who wouldn't? So... Why didn't God choose a better sin, a bigger sin for the original? One of the ten on the tablets, maybe. He could have chosen thou shalt not kill. He could have got a father with a very sharp knife, a captive life with a neck kneeling and a young son with large eyes who hardly had the strength to hold the head that he was given by his dad. Now, that's an original sin. More to feed on. Badness beyond belief. And he wouldn't need a garden. Any old desert would do with... Any old TV crew? Well, there's a sense of humour there to begin with. Yes, I have a sense of humour. And I think sometimes that saves us from the darkness. Indeed. But a sense of mocking uh, in some ways? That... Oh, yes. Yes? Yes. It's, uh, it's the, um, the... I mean, some people believe that uh, God wrote the Bible. Uh, I don't believe that. I believe that the, the Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament were written by people with vested interests. And temptation, and yielding to temptation as a sin, as, you know, the sin, it's pretty trivial. I mean, you know... It all depends on what the temptation is, well, I would uh, guess. But the temptation isn't to sort of uh, kill people and cut their heads off. Well, you do go into that domain when yeah, you, you've got yeah. ones about the but young... That's, that's, that's serious stuff. I mean, you know, everybody gets tempted. Let's face it. So if you're going to have a sin that you want to control people with, you get one that everybody sort of suffers from, right? But if you're just going to make... Uh, killing a sin, not everybody's a killer, right? So you you haven't got control over the masses, but the masses get tempted. So the masses need to be controlled. The masses need to go to the temples. The masses need to be paying the priests. But it's because it's generic. It's rather vague and insubstantial in some ways. Of course, yeah, it's poetry. The sin is generic more than anything else, so it loses substance. But then, you know, the ending of that poem, he wouldn't need a garden. Any old desert would do with any old TV crew. So, what, making a comment on, on contemporary society and... Maybe a wee bit. You know, sadly, the, the, the episode that in partly inspired that was that first beheading of a, a captive by ISIS. Well, you go into that. You've got a poem called The Young Jihadi, yeah. which looks at that and yeah. just that notion of a father giving his son the head to yeah. hold up yeah. and that as an, an original sin. And it's mind-boggling. It Still, is. even today, I mean, as we are recording, and this is a pre-record, uh, just yesterday, more people were arrested in Melbourne yeah. for 
planning a suicide mission. And you wonder about the psychology of people yep. that allow them to do that, that yep. make them think that that is acceptable. Well, it comes usually through authority that claims... I mean, a lot of people do all sorts of things uh, believing in a particular authority. But the authority in itself is a figment. It's an abstract, given what they believe it to be telling them. You could say that about every authority, except, of course, the Australian tax office. <laughs> so the royalties from We Carry the Cave are going to be so enormous you could get yourself into I trouble, are you? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> so the collection is called We Carry the Cave. The poet is Bill Jenkins. It's from Gin and Dera Press, uh, and they often release little collections they like this. They certainly do. Bill, thank you very much for coming in today. You're very welcome, David. Thank you. And now for my second pre-record, Rosalie Ham. Farming has been one of the cornerstones of Australian life. Rosalie Ham takes up the cause for the current-day farmer, giving a contemporary and somewhat satirical view of life on the farm in the Year of the Farmer. So, Rosalie, welcome to 3CR. Thank you. Now, I'd like to start with the big picture of life on the land. You have vast issues, drought, inheritance, and ruin is just an open gate away. Your take on farming? That's the way it always has been to me. My family are farmers and as a kid we spent a lot of time at the farm and you heard all of those things and you saw people going bust around you and you saw the ruin and you understood what could happen if the, if it didn't rain every so, day that's the first thing they look for is the weather report the landscape of farming has somewhat changed all of those are perennial issues who's going to inherit the farm the drought uh, that you've got to survive. Mm. But now there are more recent challenges which you expose in this novel and it centres around water. Yes. What's going on there? It's got to do with allocations and it's got to do with the fact that now not only are you dependent on the weather, which you can't depend on, but you're also dependent on the authorities. And according to the catchment, depending on how much water there is in the catchment, farmers are allocated a percentage of that. Whether or not they get their full percentage of water is irrelevant. They still have to pay for the water and the upkeep. That's not healthy. That's no good. Because if you only get 20% of your water, then you can only grow 20% to pay off debts and mortgages and all that. But this is government interference in many ways. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's rife for corruption because it's such a valuable resource and it's only regulated to the extent that you can regulate an irrigation channel and all the people responsible for it. But you have deals done on a handshake. There's uh, two characters, Mitch and, and Esther. Esther's moving off the farm. Yes. But <coughs> Mitch gets her water rights, but it's on a handshake. That's a kind of a loophole. They can trade between each other. And Esther doesn't want the water authority to take any of the commission or get the water because the more water they've got, the more they've got to play with and the more power they've got. And Mitch, his life will change if he gets Esther's water rights. And so 
water entitlements are often worth more than the farm itself. So you've got millions of dollars tied up mm. and then somebody can just almost take it away from you through regulation. And yes, and like. the trade has changed the price per megalitre, so it could be your superannuation. But if something happens and the price of water drops, you can lose your superannuation as well. If he sells water, then he's lost equity in his farm, but he still has to pay the same amount for his mortgages and his loans. So his business plan is ruined. They're kind of on the back foot the whole time. They can never quite recoup. And at the same time, there's productivity squeeze and costs are going up for everything and they have to keep expanding so that they can meet demand and pay things. And farmers don't actually own their land anymore. They just manage it. The banks well, now you bring up the issue of the banks yeah. and we're currently in the financial inquiry yes. because the banks have basically not done their job and no. given bad advice to farmers. Mm. So there's this broad picture and also then the disaster could be a drought or an open gate. It's just a sort of breath away from disaster every moment. It is. And the people that are that uh, have the power, like the banks and the water authorities, don't understand the human face of it and they fail to recognise that they're meant to be part of the whole thing, not the leaders of it. And they don't seem to understand also that the farmers are primary producers. Like you have to look after them. They're the ones that are growing the crops. They're the ones that are supplying the wool. And the banks and authorities in general don't kind of get that. And so they well, have a business. you need to be part of a community rather yes. than simply look at the balance sheet. Yeah, and they're not part of the community. They're, they have a role that they think where they can dictate terms to do with good business plans, which doesn't meet with human or nature. But now, up close, we have far more prosaic issues. <laughs> this is a small country town, but the domestic challenges would rival a major city in many ways. As we said, there's Mitch, who's one of the, the main characters in the story, but he's in an unhappy marriage to mm. Mandy, so mm. he could lose the farm. He's being assaulted from all fronts, poor old Mitchell. He's a bit of a, um, a cipher, I guess you'd say, for farmers in general and some of the problems they could face, but he's just got all of them, the poor boy. He actually sums it up. What the else can I do? Sell the land from under my father's geriatric ass, hand all the money over to the bank and get a job at the hairdressers. This clean-cut guy was giving Mitch the shits. Mate, it's been a long drought and I've got worn-out machinery and sick donkeys and an unhappy wife, a deaf father, and there are dogs and foxes happy to meet my only profitable thing, my sheep, and I'm about up to pussy's bow with every thing at the moment, all right? So he's, he's got this whole yeah. catalogue of issues assailing him. Mm. And his wife, Mandy, now what's her problem, shall we say, or oh, problems? She's got a big problem. There's always someone in the community that doesn't work with the community, that works against the community. Somebody, for whatever reason, um, is resentful and they don't work for the greater good. And that, that happens to be poor old Mandy. Um, and if you're going to have a villain, I just think that Mandy's a pretty good villain. But at the same time, I mean, she's nasty. She's without direction. You see the other women chipping in. You know, they come out at crutching time. They, you know, know what to do during harvesting and all of these sorts of things. And so there's a collaboration. If you've got to survive out there on the farm 
and there's two of you against all of the elements. You need someone that will work with you. And you, you're quite right. You're spot on. Na- Mandy doesn't do that. She's, well, she actively sabotages. Yes, she does. Yeah. Because she wants out. She hasn't got any purpose or direction no. in her life. Mm. But then we have a range of other issues. I mean, for example, we have Isabel. Now, that's Mitch's sister. And Mitch has bought her out. But she's a bit of an entrepreneur. She's typical of women in rural areas. And a lot of people don't see that or recognise that if they're not from a rural environment. There are women that I know that drive chaser bins at harvest with two baby seats and the kids next to them. They are there at harvest. They are there at shearing. They help with the irrigation. They come home and cook for 40 people with a lettuce and a tomato. Then they do a little bit of online trading for wheat or water or whatever, then they get prettied up and go dancing. And then men recognise the worth of them. And it's to do with community and it's to do with, as you say, the partnership and collaborating and working together. So if you're Mandy and you're not doing that, then you're not fitting in and people don't understand why you're not working for the greater good. Well, you've also then got uh, the single uh, mothers group and the waterhole. Uh, now, tell me, what's going on there? With the single mothers. Well, single mothers and what happens at the waterhole and all of these sorts of things when somebody well, new turns up there's in a town. new boy in town and he happens to be a swimmer and a cyclist. And so it's that, that whole, there's a bit of a motive. If, you know, you've got the swimming pool of the town and everything is calm and then there's a couple of stones thrown in and there's a ripple effect out there. But you know in any small community, if it's a staff room or a sports club or anything, if there's a new member, there's a certain amount of disruption. Yeah, there is. And if it happens to be a handsome young man that comes to a small community like that, well, it just gives everybody a opportunity to put lipstick on and do their hair and be it sitting up at the bar on Friday night. But this is in contrast to sort of trying to survive and struggle on the land, which yeah. is, is quite hilarious. Mm. So that was very entertaining to see what was happening there. And of course, you do have narrowly yeah, I might just add that Stacy, the guy that comes to town, he also happens to be the enemy. But yes, we do have Nerily, and Nerily arrives in the town and takes a position where she's both the focus but must remain neutral for the sake of her business. And she can't really interfere in Mitch and, Ma- and Mandy's relationship although she's longing to. So her position is a little bit fraught for a while and she's also stuck between a rock and a hard place. But ultimately, it is narrowly that shows the way by her action, what she does for Mitch in the end. What she does for Mitch and what she does for the town because she's sort of taking over the the pub. Yes. There's narrowly mm. being an entrepreneur. Yes. For the situation. Yeah. And there are certain institutions that are so important yes. in and country she's, she saved. She's come back and saved that institution. And so she's got a quite a prominent position. Now, can I talk about what happens then on Christmas Day? Yes. Because it sort of leads to the whole satire, the point of the satire mm. that's going on, because we have the Christmas gathering at the end of the year, and this is the year of the farmer. But what do we have? 
When he finally got to the dining room, Mitch found a circle of shouting customers and Jay-Z and Mandy on their knees in a sea of smashed crockery and broken glass, each with a handful of the other's hair. Levin was trying to separate them. Kevin held Lana by her skirt to stop her diving into the fray. Larry Perfect was taking bets in the corner. Isabel was standing on a chair with a glass of champagne while her kids filmed the whole thing on their phones. The Christmas lunches clutched their drinks and held their food plates high to keep them out of harm's way. Then Elsie came running in with an ice bucket and threw the contest on the wrestling girls. Startled, they were momentarily motionless. Then Lana lunged, leaving her skirt in Gev's hand, and flipped Mandy onto her back. Jay-Z sat on her, pinning her arms to the floor. That'll do it then, Levin said, and Daryl helped them up and held their arms in the air, declaring a tie. Lana put her skirt back on. We have chaos. Well, as you shoot on Christmas Day, that's what it's for, especially in the local pub. But we have a, a visitor from Sydney saying... It's like apocalypse now. And it's all just sort of to highlight the difference between rural and urban. And, uh, you know, just to let people know this is where your chop comes from and this is where the water comes from. Well, we're disconnected, Absolutely, yes. In in a lot of ways, it's it's getting less disconnected, but I think it's coming from the rural communities more. They're the ones that are in touch with what's happening in the cities because they have to be because that's where all the business is and that's where all the communication comes from. But the rural people are not seen in the same way by the But the rural landscape is also changing (coughs) because we've got those that would have inherited not going back onto the land. So the sons are becoming business people themselves. Mm -hmm. Because then that farm will be consumed by the farm next door and so you've lost one family and so you've lost four kids from the local school and you've lost four people that are going to spend their money in the town so it it's kind of has a roll-on of effect like that so there's a whole other series of issues now coming into mm-hmm. that sort of rural argument it's trying to survive it's adapting and farmers have always done that they've always adapted to try and survive but uh, it's getting harder and harder because the, the cost of everything is going up. And also that th- there's a lack of seasons. Now you can grow cherries all year round, whereas once upon a time farmers would have a lull where they would go about and do other things or plant other things, but now they have to compete. And so if one cherry crop fails, it makes no difference to anyone because there are plenty of cherries out there. Uh, whereas that cherry farmer has got no alternative because he just grows cherries, whereas once upon a time he might have grown, I don't know, lucerne or something as a well. A variety of crops. Well, if you want to know more about what it's like to live on the land, the book is The Year of the Farmer. The author is Rosalie Ham, and it's a Pan Macmillan release. Rosalie, thank you very much. Thank you.